I'm not going to be afraid of the fact that I'm Indian. Uh, I think it's a great culture. It's a culture that spans millenniums. I did not become a doctor like my parents wanted me to. I went into coffee. I can develop coffee and make it into a business that I really enjoy and live and love. And I can't think of one day in the past 30 years where I have not enjoyed uh, roasting coffee. This is Food at a Radio, is all dressed up and has no place to go. Care for a cup of coffee? It's one of the only things getting me through this. But if you're a coffee roaster, the disappearance of the restaurant market, and even the ability of people to just hang in a coffee shop for a few hours, has had a big impact on you. In this episode, we talk to Chris Chaco, owner of Chicago's Sparrow Coffee, a little about how he's reacting to keep his coffee business afloat at his Naperville Cafe and his West Loop Roastery. But he really gets excited when we talk about why he loves coffee, and in the second half, about the Indian food he's been cooking at home. But first, please subscribe to Food Eater Radio at the podcast app of your choice, and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Now, let's have a cup of joe with Chris Chaco. You've got your shop still going out in Naperville, and you must be doing some things downtown. What's How's all that working? What's it like? Well, we're, we're fortunate that Naperville has really embraced us. The cafe, we have always kept uh, open, and it was a decision. We just kind of sat around and said, should we shut the cafe down? What should we do? And... Uh, and we decided uh, early on uh, to keep it open under the strictest of uh, safety protocols. I mean, pretty much enact lots of the uh, things that we were doing now uh, a week to two weeks earlier than we were actually required to do. And we kept it going. And in the beginning, it was, you know, a few sales here and there. Uh, but miraculously enough, uh, um, uh, it's actually doing quite well, considering that nearly all of the orders are coming in uh, online. And uh, I think uh, I think restaurants that have stayed open for their to-go and didn't, did not close, I think I'm reaping some of the benefits of that. Um, so Naperville is actually doing quite well. Now that we're online, we can actually see the people that are ordering and a lot of them are repeat customers, you know, the ones that come. And surprisingly, um, uh, there are so many people that have reached out to us in gratitude, uh, not only in words, but, you know, there, there are people that would go in and buy a, a, a $4 cup of coffee or a cappuccino and tip $5 right, you know, yeah. for, the, for the employees. I mean, really, really quite, quite astounding and remarkable. We had a young lady reach out to us via email. Um, fortunately, uh, uh, Liz handles most of the marketing emails, which is good because I'll never get to it. Um, and um, and and reached out to us and said, you know, we're starting this charity to help local businesses. Would you mind uh, if we donate some money to your cafe? Now, obviously, we're not going to take the money, and uh, because we've been open, we're actually doing reasonably well. But I mean, that sort of char- charitable sort of mindset. Um, is just prevalent in, in in what we have seen in, in Naperville. Now, uh, we're talking about, uh, April's doing really well, uh, but the roastery here downtown in Chicago is not. And 
we have lost 97% of our business and that literally um, has impacted us to the point of um, virtual bankruptcy. Uh, the partners have to throw in money to keep everyone employed. And, uh, pretty much we have everyone on full salary since the day one of the pandemic, whether the government was going to give us money or not, and they're still being paid. Uh, but it's really put the roastery in in quite a predicament. But um, we're moving along, chugging along. So we're doing a lot of uh, things that we needed to do here, you know, painting and uh, doing some plantings, uh, planting a garden, uh, things that are not necessarily making us any money whatsoever, but uh, at least uh, um, keeping our people productive. You know, we have, as you know, we have like 35,000 square feet, maybe a little bit more than that here. A lot of it's undeveloped, and uh, so we're putting it to use, and maybe we can turn some of this uh, garden project that was necessitated by the pandemic into something that, you know, our cafe can use. Um, uh, you know, that's kind of how we're progressing along, but everyone's here maintaining their distance and uh, um, and doing, you know, doing the best they can. We have a few retail orders that come in, and I guess maybe that pays for the gas bill yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. But, uh, and we're very fortunate we have such a support, uh, uh, but the wholesale business is basically down to, uh, you know, down to zero. And really the business we create is really the ones that we're selling to our own cafe. And what about people who are ordering directly? Yeah. You know, we, we set up a, uh, a Venmo account for people that are ordering directly, we give them a pretty good deal. And, uh, they can Venmo, Sparrow Coffee, or, or call, or I'm sorry, or uh, email retail at Sparrow Coffee and get uh, some retail coffee delivered to their home. is actually a spectacular deal because we are, a lot of those coffees are, are those that we sold to, you know, Michelin star restaurants and other exceptional restaurants. And, and we can't sell it to them now. So um, and rather than having the coffee uh, go south, uh, we prefer, you know, it to be actually sold to people that can drink it. So it's actually a great deal. And if anyone's interested, they should be emailing retail at sparrowcoffee.com. And uh, uh, the coffee is delivered virtually same day or next day, uh, Monday through Friday. Now, I saw you were actually hiring for the cafe even or for someone to to make pastries for the cafe. Yeah, I mean, we, we like to be as vertically integrated as possible. You know, Gray has done a marvelous job, but we are looking for a pastry chef or a chef to actually give him some assistance. Uh, we do want to, you know, it, it is a cafe. It's not a full-blown restaurant, although uh, I will say that uh, we, quite a bit of our sales is actually food, and which is a direction that we wanted to take it anyway. There are things that I wouldn't normally eat, but I actually love eating now. I mean, take, <laughs> take for example, like our avocado toast. I absolutely have deplored avocado toast. Couldn't understand why why anyone would have it on the menu. And then this is when when Matt was with us. We developed an avocado toast, and, and it looked somewhat plain and mundane. And I said, Matt, no, 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 put your everything into it as if you were still at Grace, and uh, give us an avocado toast that you're going to be proud of. And he came back, and I think it was the second iteration. It was like spectacular, and I think it's. Uh, Next to the waffles, or you know, it may have actually surpassed the waffles. It's actually our very best seller, and it's an avocado toast that I actually enjoy eating, and um, we have quite a bit of following for it. But you know, we we want to expand. Uh, um, nearly everything that we do, we produce ourselves, and we're talking from the marshmallows we serve at the cafe 
to the caramel syrups we produce, to the dulce leche we make, to, uh, I mean, uh, to the vanilla beans. You know, we buy Madagascar and vanilla beans, create our own syrups. Everything is done in-house. And the pricing that we have at Naperville is really quite affordable. I, I would say it's probably like what the chain stores charge, if not maybe even a little bit cheaper. And uh, but in order for us to retain our clientele and kind of have the edge, we need that talent, you know. And I often tell people that, you know, when you come into our cafe in Naperville, you can have the most sophisticated equipment there, but unless you have a trained barista or someone that really knows something about food, you know, it's not going to it's it's not going to matter to us because you really need to have that trained barista creating and texturing that milk correctly. You need someone that knows a little bit about food. I mean, even our general manager Megan, you know, she has a culinary degree. Um, you know, and that's kind of the direction we want to take. And now we want to, you know, we want to build on that. And I know it was kind of a, despite us losing as money as uh, as we have been during the pandemic, I thought that having another uh, culinary talent, and we haven't hired uh, anyone yet, uh, but we have a number of resumes we're, we're going over. Having uh, having a resume, I mean, having another uh, chef here would really help us to develop uh, that menu come, uh, you know, summer and uh, into the fall. You know, we really need to up our pastry game. Uh, I really don't feel that Chicago or the Midwest has good pastries. Uh, I want to have uh, I want to have pastries that are equivalent to like when you walk into a, a San Francisco pastry shop and you have these wonderful kunomans or or cannelés and I want that sort of pastry in our cafe and I want to do it ourselves um, and I want to because I don't see how you can buy from a vendor and maintain that sort of freshness unless you did it that morning um, and um, and you served it that and when you run out you you run out uh, uh, and that's kind of like where we want to be. Say that at the end of June, as it currently looks now, restaurants start to reopen. Um, how do you gear up again at that point? Well, for us, it's going to take minimal gearing up. Uh, right now, as I said, all of our grocery personnel are employed and are working. Um, um, so it would be very easy for us to ramp up. We actually have seen an influx of uh, orders come in. This week, a uh, number of restaurants that were closed for the past uh, month and a half or so uh, are opening back up, uh, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, for, for to-go service, and they are ordering coffee, which is surprising to me. Uh, quite a few restaurants. I would say, uh, gosh, we have uh, somewhere around 300 restaurants, a little over 300 restaurants nationwide. Um, and I would say we have about 15 restaurants that ordered this week, which is, you know, to me, very surprising. Um, and I think that's going to just uh, keep going. So gearing up, I'm not going to have an issue. The whole thing is, are we going to have enough financial liquidity here to keep our people on payroll until July? I guess that's really the question the partners and I are really kind of grasping. How can we get creative where we're, we don't have to furlough anyone and we can keep this thing going, just kind of uh, go into July 1st, uh, knowing that it's going to be rough, uh, but what are we going to do about it? Um, you know, when we set up Sparrow the Roastery, this business was never really geared to make millions of dollars. It was really set up to perpetuate the craft, which is why we had the option of picking the customers that we want. I mean, we want to be self-stable. We want to grow at a very steady pace, but it was never my intention of being the biggest or the baddest. We wanted to grow at a very methodical uh, rate, selling to people that respected our craft. Um and the downside to that is 
we can't generate the kind of volume that we need that other, even other coffee businesses can, because other coffee businesses, they sell to grocery stores, which we don't. We absolutely refuse to sell to grocery stores with a couple of exceptions. Like we sell to local foods, which, uh, and they take very good care of our coffee. So we do that. Uh, we have been doing that for nearly a year uh, and a few other outlets. But generally speaking, gearing up for this we don't know it's uh it's, it's still a wild card and we're taking it week by week uh having a lot of meetings among uh, liz and myself jake and and jimmy and uh all of us are saying how are we going to do this uh you know i i like to plan for months even years in advance and i will tell you this is caught not really it's caught the entire industry by surprise but uh, you know, we just have to go one week at a time i guess mike tell me about uh when you started at you you know coffee Coffee roasters all have different personalities. A lot of them are kind of geared around their cafe. You know, you think of something like Dark Matter has a particular personality in its brand. What was your thought about who you wanted to approach? When I started selling to back, you know, 30-some years ago, the kind of customers I used to sell to was like John Bonchet and uh, uh, eventually the Roland when he took over uh, John Bonchet and... Uh, uh, you know, with their French press coffee and used to sell to Everest, Joho, and uh, of course, Ambria, you know, Gabino Sotolino. These were my customers and they were essentially foreign chefs that knew coffee when American chefs really knew nothing about coffee. And uh, and I started building and I started selling to chefs because they're the ones that understood flavors um, in, in the coffee room because they had coffee as they were growing up. It was part of their culture. And so I continue to go on that route because it's it's the it's the client base that made me happy. I mean, I could go and I could sell a uh, five pounds of coffee to uh, to Roland and Mary Beth back uh, back in the day, and they would go, "Oh my gosh, you know, this is great coffee. Uh, we love this. Our customers love it." And I could start tweaking it. And uh, I started realizing after you know after you do this for so many years, uh, back when specialty coffee was so young and and we really didn't know what good coffee was. Um, we were trying to develop these flavor profiles. I realized that um, I started noticing patterns in coffee. And we started developing that into a whole set of different algorithms. I mean, we, could, we were getting to the point where we could literally blind roast coffee simply by listening to how the coffee beans were popping and changing and, and uh, the noise that it made as it started cooling and um, as the... Uh, um, the amount of heat that it was being absorbed. As I would do experimental coffee and I would bring it to these uh, exceptional chefs, uh, they they would be able to tell the difference. And I found that really fascinating. So when we started Sparrow, that was a clientele that I really wanted to develop. And of course, back 30 years ago, I would sell to anybody I could. But I found that I was very, very dependent on the large chains. And I don't want to name them, but I was selling to them. And if if they wanted to not buy because they wanted an extra 10 cents uh, off the pound of coffee, I could lose 20 or 30% of my business for that. And I really hated that predicament. And um, especially when it was all about a price game. Everyone wanted to buy, I mean, uh, pretty much superior coffee is kind of, kind of kaput. But back in the day, it was superior coffee was me and a few other people that were roasting coffee. And I wanted to develop a client base that um, I could sell to where they weren't going to bicker over a nickel or a dime and, uh, and people that really understood. And 
And so that was the client base that I really went after and really sought. And we did, we had no money. I mean, when we started this, we, we really funded our company for about a year and a half, bought the most sophisticated equipment where we could still manually roast our coffee and develop these flavor profiles. I had these two dozen algorithms. We built a, uh, we approached a coffee roaster manufacturer and said, I want you to change the, the build of your machine. I want you to add some of these other technologies that we uh, kind of uh, started the roasting using, you know, for the past 50 years of knowledge, incorporate into your roaster. And we, we had those roasters, the state-of-the-art roaster, and we had no customers but and no marketing dollars. So what we did was the first customer that I, I went after was Paul Verand and uh, V, because I used to sell to him ever since he started under my previous nameplate. And he immediately, he was, he became my very first customer. And um, we simply approached chefs who knew flavors. And instead of trying to battle the coffee industry and try to go through distributors, we said, we bet if we went after chefs that really cared about the ingredients they had, they would also care about coffee. And it was really a big gamble. We put our life savings into a company where, uh, the, I mean, one of my business partners uh, has been with me since the very beginning from 30 years ago. He said, Chris, you're not going to get this business to work. There's no way you can do the equipment, do the equipment service, and have all this training, provide so much, and have such low margins to make this business work. Uh, but you know, we, they believed in me, and they funded the, the Sparrow Coffee. And lo and behold, within eight months of opening up Sparrow, doing one tasting after the next to one chef after the next, we had 80 wholesale customers in less than a year, and it was unbelievable. We were so busy, we didn't know what to do. And at that point, we kind of had the liquidity to say, you know, we approached the customers we wanted to. We don't need to sell to this other customer, uh, this other uh, customer group because, hey, I don't like the quality of what they're buying. I don't want my coffee to represent that type of food. Um, I want people to know that when they see Sparrow Coffee on the menu that – we also like to meet there. And uh, that's kind of how the business can unfold it and, and, and grew. Uh, and, and we have Sparrow where we are. But, you know, we built up a company that did not depend on any one customer. Uh, and then lo and behold, the pandemic hit, and here we are essentially at uh, ground zero again. Well, you know, the thing that seemed really striking to me was just, you know, coffee in the U.S. tends to be sort of, you know, a trumpet blast. And that that's just, it's not subtle enough for food. And, you know, doing the tasting with you, which is, you know, one of the great Chicago experiences as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's well, just one of those, you know, you, you see how something that seems so strong can nevertheless complement food. It seems like it should blow it all away, you know, or maybe the, the only food that coffee goes with is, uh, you know, toast and scrambled eggs at a diner. But in fact, you see how there, you can isolate flavor components that complement things in the food at the restaurant. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, when you when we're taking a look at green coffee, green coffee, green coffee and raw coffee beans, as the roaster is developing this coffee, you know, there's a lot of things that are that are at play. There are chemical developments. It's literally like a lottery of components. And essentially, we're developing uh, what you are tasting is approximately 850 flavor-related components. 
and only 100 of those remain unchanged in green coffee. So the rest is the roaster's hand at work taking the raw materials that Mother Nature has put there and developing it into this kaleidoscope of flavors. Now, how we develop that is is truly the craft and art of coffee. And I would say, in the, you know, yeah, most coffee roasters, when they get into coffee roasting, there it really, really seems like a very easy business to get into because anyone can toss something in and it's like cooking steak or something, but not, only, not everybody can cook it well. And it really takes years and years of discipline to know that I don't want to just make coffee brown, and but there's a way to get to it. And, and, a, and a way to understand coffee is to understand that when we are developing it, let's say we go, um, an analogy was, let's say that the whole coffee roasting a procedure is an A to Z curve. You have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way up to Z. And how we are developing that coffee at E depends on the compounds that are created. And then as you get to M, L, L, M, N, O, P, and R, you have a different set of compounds that are created. And then as you, when you are, let's say, at, at, at the flavor development point of M, you may have... 300 flavor-related components that are integral to, let's say, um, certain types of citrus notes. But the palate threshold may be one, um, one part in 100 million of a certain compound. And that's where the real intricate um, development happens because your palate is sensing thinks uh, sensing compounds and flavors that are compounding on very similar compounds. And by the very end of the rose, you have this sort of logical kaleidoscope of flavors. So how can we project this and develop this coffee so it is repeatable? In order to get everything, you really need the technology behind. And a lot of coffee roasters that tend to roast um, one of the reasons you have very inconsistent coffee is that if you say, let's say you get to 350 degrees and you got there at exactly six minutes and 45 seconds, but let's say you stalled the roast and you were there for an extra 15 seconds, well, you wouldn't have a completely different coffee by the time you get to R or S or Z. Um, I, I don't know if I went off on a tangent here. <laughs> I, I, just got the, I, I forgot the original question, Mike. What was the original question? Well, no, I think it's that, it's that process. I mean, and what do you do just when you get a new coffee in? Do you just like roast it one way and then roast it another way and see what happens? Or Well, I mean, it's, um, it's, like, uh, it's like when a chef gets a certain type of fish or a certain type of beef or lamb. You just know intuitively how to cook it from your past experience, and then you fine-tune it. Um, so we have, um, you know, methodologies we use, whether, you know, let's say it's a Nicaraguan Pacamara or, or an Ethiopian heirloom coffee, we know how to develop it. We know generally what flavors we are looking for. And uh, then we try to see how we can fine tune it. So let's say if it's a, an Ethiopian Guji, which is one of my favorite coffees, which has this sort of, um, an orange citrus notes, uh, coupled with a lot of blueberries, uh, and, you know, we can take that orange and develop it as a crisp citrus orange, or we can take it and we can develop it as an orange marmalade. And, um, and when you start drinking that coffee with some sort of a, a food group, it literally will change on your palate. And, um, 
and those are the kind of flavor profiles that we're looking for. I mean, what we have discovered is that if we are looking at, uh, let's say, like an SEAA uh, graded coffee, we're talking specialty coffee association, like a grading system. If we are looking at coffees that are uh, exceptional, let's say like 89 points and 90 points and higher, we have discovered that the, the restaurants that prefer to actually use those coffees are the restaurants that are at the two and three Michelin star level. Because at, at that particular point, if you serve a coffee that is nuanced, let's say very peach forward and has this sort of beautiful lemon citrus quality to it, um, they love that sort of a flavor profile. Whereas if I'm going to a restaurant that is serving more ma and pa food, if I were to serve a coffee that is literally a limeade, it would be looked down upon. So we need to really go towards more of the chocolate notes or earthy notes or maple notes or and give it some sense of acidity behind it to balance it all. And that's kind of how we develop our flavor notes for different customers. And uh, and of course, the the chef or the sommelier have they have the final call on how to develop it. And when we approach a customer, uh, sometimes they say, "Chris, you go at it. Give us the coffee that goes with our menu." In some cases, the chef wants a particular coffee from a particular farm, or uh, they want a particular reason that just want us to keep developing. Now, when you talk about Michelin two and three star. I mean, to some extent, those are specific sorts of restaurants and tasting menus tend to be a certain way because you can't you can't put like a spicy thing early on in a tasting menu or a, you know, a garlicky thing or whatever, because you're going to ruin everything that comes after it. But I don't know that I think I don't know. We, I think we have a, a fundamental disagreement about Michelin, but I don't know that I'm convinced that they 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 can describe a class of restaurant, but not so much the food. Uh, I, I yeah, I think we're probably in a very strong disagreement on that. Um, uh, I think um, you know when you have uh, let's say defined as a certain class of restaurants, you have to also look at that the chef there has the leeway uh, from either the chef owner or from the management all the way up to the ownership. They have the leeway to go be able to source higher quality ingredients. Whereas if you go to, as you say, a different class of restaurants, um, they may not have the financial resources to be able to source um, the highest quality ingredients that they can, or, or maybe not even at that level. So I know, you know, I, and I think this is also a distinction with when we say quality of ingredients, there is a whole level of flavor profiles that go beyond flavor. And I think you heard me saying this briefly in uh, some of our, uh, uh, some of our conversations, there is, there's a level we call flavor and there's a level that is beyond that we call nuance. And if you really want to take great fish, like great fish in a, in a, uh, in a sushi establishment, we're not talking about essentially flavor that smacks you on the palate. We're talking about distinctive nuances. And you can only get those nuances in exceptionally um, sourced ingredients where terroir actually has a play at it. And can you taste those ingredients? And, um, and it's one of the, the big beasts that I have that with um, say like Indian restaurants. Indian restaurants. I you know I love Indian restaurants. I am Indian by heritage, 
But, you know, you go into an Indian restaurant, and yes, there's a lot of flavor there, but sometimes the quality of the ingredients, uh, you cannot taste how good the lamb is, or you cannot taste how good the vegetables are. You can simply taste, well, this has a lot of flavor. And I think when we take a look at some of the Michelin restaurants, uh, there is indeed, uh, in my opinion, um, a very distinct level of the quality of the food that's being produced at one-star restaurants, and there is a difference uh, in the quality of food produced at a two-star and a three-star, and almost to the point of being exponential. Like, you can't, it's not a linear scale when you go from a one-star to a two-star. There's, there's, there's two or three steps there, and then you go to that three-star, and I think that distinction is pretty evident, especially when you take a look at the nuance of ingredients that the chefs are using. You can still, I mean, it's not just nuance of ingredients. The chef has to know what he's doing. Um, and that's kind of like where, and I, you know, I, I like to equate Sparrow Coffee uh, at that sort of level where we can start to distinguish nuance in our coffees and we can actually develop those nuances and do it in a consistent basis. Yeah, but I guess I still see that as basically saying that they kind of limit the world of food to a couple of traditions. There's kind of classical French skewing into modernist, and there's kind of you know Japanese refined food. And I just feel there's other there's other traditions that they're not so good at identifying with those things. Maybe that's enough for your purposes to define what your coffee can go with. And it's true that those other traditions, there's a lot of cheap food in them that is, you know, lesser ingredients. Um, It's only one, one lens to me through which to look at all that the world of food offers. In the very beginning, we went after food that um, that we actually like to eat, and that's the customers that we went after. We went after chefs that we where we actually enjoy the food. And um, Sparrow Coffee is not expensive, although we don't necessarily sell to all the restaurants because uh, we choose who we wish to sell to. Uh, but our coffee is not expensive, and you know you can get thirty cups of coffee from a pound of coffee, and uh, that those are huge margins, and. Um, um, so it doesn't matter if you have uh, a small ma pa restaurant where you're sourcing really, really well. Uh, if you have a pizza place and you're sourcing really well, and there's a lot of craft in the in the products you're creating, or you are developing uh, a tasting menu. Um, coffee is affordable; it's the affordable luxury. Right, but I mean, in terms of the ingredients that the restaurant is using, and if they're, you know, if they're cooking in a tradition that doesn't fetishize the highest quality of ingredients so much as it brings, you know, like a mole, it brings together a lot of relatively inexpensive things into something complex. Um, Isn't that kind of a different approach from, from the Michelin approach of, you know, what's the most exquisite little bit of seafood I can turn into a nubbin on a plate. Uh, Let's let's go back to talking about traditions. We're talking about French food. We talked about Japanese food and for, for uh, uh, for decades, it was really French food that uh, was really epitomized as being, you know, at, at, at that top level. And Japanese food never really came into play. But the fact of the matter is those two traditions have exceptional foods because 
um, the people that are behind it, the chefs that, that develop uh, these foods, spend an enormous amount of time learning how to cook, learning how to source ingredients, and bringing that to the forefront. And do I think that you can have great uh, German food? Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember going to uh, Thailand and tasting one of the best German restaurants I ever had. It was a one Michelin star, and, and uh, a few months after I left, they got they got two Michelin stars because the food was really at that level. I think you can take any cuisine and you can start doing that. What I am saying is that um, uh, Indian Indian food or Mexican food or uh, uh, any other kind of uh, traditional food. You can certainly elevate it, uh, but as long as you're not trying to shortcut it and trying to mask um, the quality of ingredients you're using, I think. I think. Um, I mean, I, I could, could probably talk in volumes on this, but I like you know we probably have a very stern disagreement on this. But I, I do feel that uh, I do think that Michelin is one lens, but I do think a lot of the things that they are doing is uh, through a very focused. Uh, way of grading food, and uh, and sometimes we j- just may not understand how they're doing it, but there is a rhyme and a logic to the way they're doing things, especially when you get down and just start tasting things. Well, we have nothing but time right now, so uh, we yeah. could, we could go on this forever. But uh, all right, well let's let's get to. Uh, Indian food specifically cooked in your home. What are you cooking these days? Well, I, I love to cook. Um, I guess um, I had no really very little material to put on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing controversial to put on Twitter, so I figured, you know, what the heck? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on there uh, something Indian food, which is which is uh, really my my heritage and. Uh, um, I guess there was a time when uh, restaurants literally said no to me because I was of Indian, uh, was of Indian heritage. They would not buy my coffee because of it. Uh, restaurants that are still around today, which I will not name, <laughs> and um, and I never forget those conversations I had with the ownership going back, you know, 15 years ago, but uh, 10, 15 years ago. But you know, some of those prejudices are still there. They just cover it up, and. Um, and when I started Sparrow Coffee, I really did not want to be the face of Sparrow. I think it was Liz who said, we live in a different day and age, and you really should be the, uh, you're the talent of Sparrow, you really should be the face of Sparrow. And she, it was really her that, that, uh, that pushed that forward. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to be afraid of the fact that I'm Indian. Uh, I think it's a great culture. It's a culture that spans millenniums and um, I did not become a doctor like my parents wanted me to. I went into <laughs> coffee. Oh well, you know, uh, I can, I can, I can develop coffee and make it into a business that I really enjoy and live and love. And I can't think of one day in the past 30 years where I have not enjoyed uh, roasting coffee. And um, so I decided, you know, I, I do a lot of Indian cooking, and I guess a lot of it is um, I, I was fortunate to have a mom and, and, and a dad that love to cook and cook very well. Uh, both of my parents uh, are from Kerala. My father has passed away, but they're, they're both from Kerala, which is South India, subtropical, western coast of India. My father left for college um, uh, and um, lived in North India for quite a bit of time. So um, he had quite a bit of knowledge of chapatis and, uh, and other breads, whereas my mom had quite a bit of knowledge of the various types of curries. Uh, 
uh, and Thorins and uh, and South Indian type breads, which are very different than North Indian, more rice-based breads in the in the South and lentil-based breads in the South. And I decided, you know what? Why don't uh, I just start putting on some of the things on Twitter that I uh, I would cook for myself anyway. And a lot of it's really Kerala-based food. And uh, we're talking about like things like arachi curry, which is really a beef dish. Um, and to give you a little bit of geographical and background knowledge on Kerala, Kerala is, uh, is a very diverse uh, state, wealthy by uh, Indian state standard. Um, almost all of the people are fairly middle class by Indian standards, very high literacy rate, uh, I think the highest literacy rate outside of uh, Finland and uh, Israel, I think. Huh. And there's a lot of outside money coming in. So I guess their biggest um, money generator is really tourism. But the food in Kerala is very different than the rest of India. Um, essentially, all the spices you can imagine, you know, all of the black pepper and the turmeric and um, all those exotic spices that uh, that the world now uses most of it originated in this part of the world. And uh, the only restaurant that really takes advantage of it in Chicago, uh, I get tattoo, which is Margaret's restaurant, which I really love uh, and, and pass off to her for uh, opening up a restaurant where I actually go enjoy the food. I think the Rue actually touches on uh, some of the South Indian ingredients, which is great. So I've been uh, putting up uh, stuff like uh, Kachimor, which is really traditional Indian food, and a lot of the stuff uh, you just don't find in restaurants. A lot of the Indian restaurants you would go to, a lot of the North Indian restaurants, even a lot of the South Indian restaurants, a lot of it's based on how the, how will the, the diner interpret this food as as tasting um, well? You know, how are they going to look at the food in their perspective? And I really think Indian food should be shown off as food that is from this particular culture. And there's a lot of masking up. And a lot of the foods I've been doing are really unmasked food. It's, yes, I will not use coconut oil. I actually prefer to use extra virgin olive oil because I think it really does wonders with Indian food because it actually uh, enhances and uh, uh, certain types of Indian dishes. So I've been you know, making some uh, palapam. And palapam is really, you know, I think the general term that we use is upam, but there's many different types of upam. And upam really in Malayalam, translate, which is a language that we speak in Kerala, translates to bread. And pal is a translation that means milk. So you're essentially saying milk bread. And it's not necessarily dairy milk. They're talking about coconut milk. So palapam is a, a type of bread that's really lacy and fermented rice, uh, really, really quite something. And most people from Kerala, and we like to say Kerala's are called Malayalis, we crave this dish because it's something that you can't get to ferment uh, in northern climates. And uh, so hats off to, again, Margaret and Tattoo for, for doing their version of it. You know, getting this bread to ferment here is really time-saking and really takes quite some effort. And, and then you've got to cast the fermentation at just the nick of time and not let it overdevelop. And then uh, and it takes about four minutes to really uh, do great polypum, but it takes about 48 hours to really really do it properly, you know, from the fermentation process. Uh, near doshas, there are many different types of doshas. Um, I think we're all familiar with the dosha that, that's crisp, um, that's made with dal and rice. Uh, but really... 
And um, really the type of dosha that is the most popular is something that uh, in, most popular in South India is not the one that uh, we have glamorized here in Western cultures, not the crisp version, but really the soft version that can really soak up curries. Essentially, it's more of a dal-focused instead of a rice-focused uh, dosha, and it's soft and fluffy. It almost looks like a pancake, but completely white, and you would just take this and put it into any sort of gravy and soak it up and eat it. And, you know... Um, um, so those type of doshas, I've been I've been making some of that, although I haven't posted anything on Twitter about it, uh, except for the, the the more typical doshas we all uh, talk. Biryanis, I love biryanis, and I've been talking about. Um, I've been doing various types of biryanis. Uh, biryani is really, uh, you know, like a dum biryani where you're actually uh, it's all a one stage sort of cooking. Uh, it's very, very difficult to do on a small scale, and um, and you can get variations. There's so many herbs and uh, so many spices at play. Um, I have a version that I've written up that takes about two dozen different types of spices, and and you know if you if you if you let it cook for just a little bit too long, and it's kind of like coffee, it kind of changes everything. I find it kind of fascinating. So I've been doing a lot of biryanis. Um, and I've been actually finishing uh, eating it all too. I'm getting a little bit of getting a little bit of uh, weight with that. Um, lots of different types of chapatis, uh, different types of wheat. We uh, uh, I find chapati very interesting. Uh, you can have. Uh, uh, I remember when my dad used to make chapati as I was growing up. He would knead the dough for 45 minutes. You know, uh, now I just put it into a mixer and use the dough. You know, and uh, it's. Um, uh, and uh, it's um, uh, it's a lot easier to do it uh, using modern technology. The way my dad used to do it. Um, but chapatis is, you know, we, although in South India we eat a lot of chapatis, really uh, essentially a, a, a mid-Indian, North Indian, uh, where there's a lot of wheat grown. You know, wheat's generally grown in uh, mid-India and further up north as, as uh, climate gets a little bit drier. And rice is generally the, the dish, the, the grain of choice uh, down in the south. Uh, a lot of Merkavarti, which is literally translates to dry rub, and it's a class of dishes. And you can have potato Merkavarti, which is um, essentially a dry rub sort of potatoes, and it is absolutely delicious. And uh, I don't know how to equate it, but it's really slow cooked, a dry rub with very, very little oil. Um, really emphasizes Meyer flavors. Um, um, and then, uh, of course, you can do that with beans, and you can do that with... Uh, almost any type of uh, vegetables. There's another class of dishes called thorin. Um, I, I don't know if I were to translate it uh, English, T-H-O-R-E-N. And thorin is really taking any of the inedible parts of vegetables, let's say like the stalks of things that you normally can't boil or cook very easily, cutting it up and dicing it up into tiny little pieces and then sauteing it over a little bit of oil with mustard seeds and definitely a, uh, a gracious amount of, uh, of grated fresh coconut. And that's a, that's a whole class of uh, dishes we call thorin. And I've never seen thorin on any, um, on, in any restaurant whatsoever um, uh, in the U.S., but it's something that, if you go to South India, it shows up on the plate 
nearly every single evening. You have one type of thought and versus another. It's just what you do to use up stuff. Well, and it's like let's say like like broccoli. You know, you can you can make um, uh, the stalks of broccoli, so the part of asparagus that normally you break off and you don't cook and you just throw away. Well, that, that's the part that we were making to thought it. And and when you cook it really slow. It, it becomes softer and very manageable. It's almost like a condiment, but it's a, it's a substantial condiment. In, in South Indian meals, the rice takes the center stage. And then you have a whole bunch, including beef or, or chicken or, uh, or pork or fish. Those are all essentially composite and thought is always a place. And often there's also some sort of a yogurt complement, a yogurt sauce. We call it mor, which is, it's sort of a boiled uh, yogurt, and we call it kachi mod, which is downright delicious. Um, uh, it takes about 15 minutes to make, and you take yogurt, and uh, you add certain level, types of spices to it. And kachi really means boiled, so you say kachi mod means boiled yogurt. Um, there are a lot of yogurt dishes we will take, and we will simply add uh, certain types of peppers to it to give it sort of uh, spicy acid quality. I mean, these are very, very common dishes that um, that you just don't find on any menus. And I think, like in, like cuisines of most cultures that end up in Western culture, it tends to go the sweeter route. Whereas, um, I hope they're all, I hope someone will open up a restaurant that takes advantage of a lot of these dishes because I really think that that um, that this has, I think when people start tasting these authentic dishes, they'll go, wow, this is really what what Indian food is all about. It's not all about just tandoori, which is great, uh, but it's not about just biryani or tandoori or doshas. You know, I, someone described it once as saying that we basically get the Thanksgiving dinner of every culture in America. You know, the the, the feast meal that's kind of over the top. And, you know, I, I, I suspect, or I just like what you're describing to me sounds really appealing as sort of the simple things that are too simple to make it into a restaurant. The basis of a lot of exceptional cuisines today and exceptional dishes and let's say like gula base all started as part of peasant food, right? And, um, and Indian culture is notorious for taking good-looking ingredients that are not necess- that don't necessarily taste good like almost any other culture and trying to call that their high-end food. And it's the food that peasants eat that are not necessarily the prettiest or not essentially what the upper classes would consider exceptional food that are actually the tastiest. And this is one of the biggest beasts that I have uh, in the food industry is that the peasant food is actually the food that is the most, is the tastiest. So why don't we take that and we develop it with even better ingredients. And we have something quite exceptional on, um, exceptional coming out. Um, and I, I'll give you one example of uh, something that every Indian restaurant will do is like basmati rice. Right. Now the way that you know, it's it, most uh, restaurants, Indian restaurants, the way they get that basmati rice is they will soak it overnight uh, or for a certain amount of hours, and then they will. So the so the basmati rice absorbs some of the water, and they will steam it. And what that will do is they'll keep uh, the starches in check, so that everything is very loose. 
Well, you know, that, that's great, but, you know, basmati rice, other than it's, it's aromatics, is very boring because basmati rice needs some of that starch to be released. You know, when you break down the starch in rice, you have like amylopectin and you have amylose, and you really need some of that pectin to be able to slightly release in order to really enjoy basmati rice. And when you make it at the home, you're really looking for that. Whereas when you're eating basmati rice at a restaurant, you're eating something that really doesn't taste as good as something you make at home just because they want it to look better. Indian restaurants, um, like a lot of other mainstay, you know, uh, cultural restaurants, will go for ingredients that will, you know, or show off ingredients so that it has a greater visual appeal and not necessarily a palate appeal. Um, uh, I mean, I the last time I cooked basmati rice the way the restaurants do. I mean, I literally can't eat it unless I kind of smother <laughs> restaurant rice with uh, with a lot of curries or something like that. But yeah. at home, you can just eat the rice by itself and you go, "Oh wow, this rice is just amazing." And the other thing is, basmati rice is one among a thousand varieties in India. You know, when I cook rice at home, I I mean, um, on my on my shelf. I have right now, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I probably eight varieties of rice. And one of my favorite rice is like a jira kasala rice. And it is an aromatic um, rice, as aromatic as basmati, but completely different. It's just tiny little grain. And I just absolutely enjoy it. And each of these rices, as you develop it, as you as you try to balance the amount of amylopectin and amylose that you're being released, and you, you catch it just that right stage, has a very distinguishing and very unique flavor profile. And then, I mean, you can just eat that rice. I don't, and you can just eat that rice, spoon it up, and you go, wow, this is a great meal. Before you know it, you haven't had any of the curries with it. I mean, that's really amazing rice. Oh, man. Okay, so I'm getting so hungry now. <laughs> you, need, you need to do uh, contactless pickup for some of this stuff, I think. Uh, you know what? I should probably open up something like that over here. And get these people working, and uh, you know, we, we have done a few recipes, uh, uh, you know. And I certainly don't want uh, a Naperville Cafe to be like an Indian Naperville Cafe, you know. But right. we have experimented right. with a lot of different types of uh, international cuisine: some Thai cuisine, some Vietnamese cuisines. Uh, I mean, dishes. Didn't you have bon yeah. me at the cafe? Yeah, we still do, and we wanted to give a a totally uh, vegan option. And that Bon Mi was actually created by Megan, um, who is our general manager, and she has a culinary degree. And uh, we, she brought it back here, and then we tweaked it a little bit. I mean, it is it is delicious. I think of the sandwiches that we have there. Um, it is my second favorite sandwich, second only to the ham sandwich, which is just downright just unbelievable um, uh, because we get that ham from a single farmer and then. Uh, and Sparrow, and I mean, it just does amazing, amazing work. But that Bon Mi sandwich is just, uh, just killer, killer. Uh, but you know, that was more along trying to accommodate uh, a client group um, uh, that would normally eat meat. Uh, but we certainly want to start uh, offering some dishes um, that play into certain types of curries, maybe a Thai curry. Um, uh, we don't want to Americanize it too much. We want it to be, uh, but we still wanted to, we wanted to sell, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the dishes that we put on there don't sell. We'll, we may we may sell 
let's say like two items in a day and then, okay, but we like it so much. We keep having it there, but until someone actually tries it, you know, you're not going to get that repeat sale because it doesn't look that appetizing from a, uh, you know, from a pitcher standpoint, but it really has a lot of flavor. Is there a book that you would suggest if someone wanted, because I, I don't ever cook Indian food. Is there a book that you would suggest that people could, you know, delve in to start um, to get an idea? You know, I have a whole bunch of Indian cookbooks at home. Um, and you probably don't look at any of them. But. No, I do. I, um, I have a good library, and I do glance over quite a few of them. I rarely ever use the recipes in them. Um, I know Chandra uh, has a really nice cookbook uh, uh, where I think it's very easy to make a, a lot of Indian dishes and with her little take on it. So I enjoy going through her cookbook. And I think it's very relevant to someone that has very little time and wants to get the essence of Indian food. Uh, and it's pretty self-explanatory. I think she does a great job. Uh, one book, I'm trying to think of the name. I haven't looked at it in years, but it's in my library. Uh, oh, and it's a huge book. Um, and the author's uh, last name is Solomon. And she has, a, she has a series of cookbooks, but she has one that is... I think literally it must be like 300 pages or something. It talks about, uh, and I think she may not be, I think she's of Indian heritage, but she may be South African or something on those lines. But a lot of her, and she goes from North Indian food to several different South Indian, and a lot of her recipes are very, very good, um, whether they're North or South Indian. So I think that's a really good reference. Charmaine Solomon, Indian cookbook, that's- and... Indian cooking for pleasure. Yes, that's it. I don't know which one of those it is, but one that's been around. Uh, there might have been a few editions, but it's literally it's like three, four hundred pages, and uh, it's a really good book. I will definitely have to get some Indian food now. I did get the the first time that uh, Margaret did the thought to uh, pop up. I may have been the first customer. I saw it and I instantly oh, placed, placed my order. Yeah, she's just she's just a lovely person. I, I love Margaret. I remember. More before I even ever knew that she she um, she had a fascination for Indian food. Obviously, you know she's married uh, to a South Indian, but she's uh, at least I believe she is. Uh, yeah. She came over to Sparrow and she was talking about Indian. But this was back when we were at Lake and Racine, um, and she just started talking about Indian food. And I go, wow, this is really quite remarkable. She has a really nice knowledge of Indian food, and now I know why. And uh, I'm so happy to see her. Uh, see her restaurant uh, open up and and actually get some accolades over the past uh, uh, couple of years, and I hope she keeps it going. Thanks for listening to Food Eater Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. And thanks to my guest, Chris Chaco. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Please subscribe to Food Eater Radio at the podcast app of your choice, and consider leaving a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover it too. Thanks. 